0: Today, contentment, all things that I know most of you just don't have any problem with whatsoever, but for those who do, you don't have to identify who you are. You can, uh, you can hopefully benefit from our time in God's Word together. Contentment, though, today. A couple nights ago, a few nights ago, actually, I was watching America's Got Talent. This was Monday night. This was after the Super Bowl. I was sad, I'll admit it, <laughs> as I was watching TV. <laughs> um, but it was uh, there was a, a guy on there who was a mind reader. At least that's what he pitched himself as, a guy who could, as he said, deduce, influence, and predict human behavior, and he did one of those sort of remarkable tricks of, you know, I think of a letter, a number, a celebrity, and while you're doing all that, I'm, I'm knowing it, and you're going to write it down, and I'll show you that I'm right, and that kind of stuff. So I, I was so impressed with that, I thought I'd do the same thing this morning. So <laughs> I'm going I'm to give you three specific patterns of behavior. And if I were to ask you to stand when you hear one that you've committed in the last 48 hours, I won't actually ask you to stand. I, I think we'd have everybody standing. Now, by not asking you to actually stand, that allows me to at least have the illusion that I'm right about this. So just let me have that fun. But I'll, I'll give you three specific patterns of behavior in the past 48 hours. So start with this one. Have you looked in a mirror? Or at a picture of yourself and thought, if only I could change something, change my nose, my hair, my weight, my body, you you name it, something, right? Past 48 hours, have you seen an advertisement for a product or service and thought, if only I could afford that, if only I could get that, things would be so much easier if I could buy that. Okay, if, if any of you are left, try this one. In the past 48 hours, have you looked at your spouse, child, parent, boyfriend, girlfriend, you name it, and thought, if only he or she would stop doing fill-in-the-blank? Some of you were just just thinking that right at that moment, right? If only he or she would start doing whatever. I, I'm pretty sure we'd all be standing if we had to think back over the last 48 hours, we we struggle with discontentment, with the if-onlys in life, if only this. Thomas Watson, who was an English pastor, said discontentment is a disease of the soul that is almost an epidemic, a disease of the soul that is almost an epidemic. Watson wrote that in the 1600s. Things are no different today. Uh, we struggle with discontentment just as People did then. We struggle with the idea that if we could just change this or buy that or fix this or, or address this in someone else's life who is close to us, if, if we could just do that, then we'd be really happy. Watson also wrote, discontentment is hereditary. If you have to think, ah, I'm not sure about that. Follow your line back to our common earthly parents, to Adam and Eve. And think about Adam and Eve, placed in the center of perfection. They are in a garden that is spectacular on every level, that is beautiful, that is abundant, that is the kind of perfection that our minds cannot even conceive. The the best of Instagram cannot compare to what was happening there in that Garden of Eden. And there, without sin, without evil motives, in a state of sweet innocence like you and I do not know, Satan provoked this new feeling in them of discontentment, this sense that you're missing something. You look around and you think it's all good, but there's still, there's something that you're falling short on that you don't have. The Creator had told them, enjoy the fruit of every tree in the garden with the exception of this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And every inclination we have from Scripture is that there was a season of time there where they did just that. They enjoyed the bounty of the garden. They enjoyed what God had provided for them. It was perfection and it was wonderful. Until Satan comes along, there's no indication... Of any struggle with envy, as Adam and Eve looked at that one tree, and Satan's first recorded words in Genesis are, "Did God actually say you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden?" And Eve says, "No, no, just that that one tree over there, that one in the middle of the garden." And Satan's response, roughly paraphrased, is along the lines of, "Oh, okay. So I guess you're you're content being ignorant. I guess you're 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 okay not knowing everything you could know if you if you." partook of, of that tree, so I, I get it. Even though that tree offers unique and special knowledge, I guess you don't want that. And immediately that triggers in Eve that sense of something missing, something that she now wants to have, and suddenly she begins to contemplate the beauty of the tree and the delight of the fruit, and she is, she's becoming envious of it. And then there's this hook from the serpent of, "...the fruit of that tree will make you wise." And suddenly everything that was luscious and beautiful and perfect all pales now in comparison to the fruit that is on this tree, that now she wants more than anything, that now seems elusive and she wants it in perfect peace, is now replaced by this nagging sense of, if only I could have the fruit of that tree, well then, like the serpent said, then I'd then I'd I'd know more than I know now. Then I'd be wise, and that can't be bad, right? That's got to be a good thing. The dictionary defines discontentment as a restless desire or craving for something one does not have. It's the if-onlys of life. It's the whatever you can finish this sentence with. I know what I have, but I would be a better Husband, better wife, better parent, whatever it might be, a better worshiper, better worker, better whatever, if only I had, usually something falls in there, discontentment is a disease of the soul. It is a longing that expresses ultimately our distrust in the creator and his provision. It's ultimately a statement that says, I know that God is the provider, but if I only had this, in a sense, it, it, it's as if we're saying, if I was the loving God of the universe, I, I think I would give myself this. I would, I would take away this pressure. I would change this circumstance that I'm under. If, you know, if, I, if, if I were able to, to do this, if I were the loving God of the universe, I'd fix my spouse or child or parent, right? That, that would be the loving thing. That's, that's why this is, this is just another form of idolatry. Because at its core, it's us saying, God, this just isn't quite enough. What you've done here is just not quite, and I am discontent. That's why we desperately need his grace to understand this. The the subtle message of Satan to Eve was, listen, if God really cared about you, if this God that that made you really loved you, would he withhold this special knowledge from you? Wow. Wow. And there arises discontentment. Topic of contentment has been on my heart for a long time, just wanting to take time to read about it and think about it, largely because of my own battle with discontentment, my own sense that 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 grass is greener mentality. That it's better there. That this would be better if that this circumstance, this change, this whatever it would be. That 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 same sense that goes with if I could if I could redo a moment in my life, then everything after that would have been so much better. If I could go back and have a mulligan on that moment, I would have so much more joy and happiness. Well, let's talk about contentment. Let's see what Scripture says. I, Philippians chapter four, if you have your Bible, Philippians four, probably the key passage uh, on the issue of contentment. We're jumping in some, into the middle of uh, actually the last part of the book, so we, we'll think about a little bit more about the the nature of Philippians and its message later, because I think that's important. But the church in Philippi itself, its birth is recorded in Acts chapter sixteen. Paul and Silas are traveling through the the um, Regions of Galatia, they are called, if we can take a look at the map, we have the vision of the Macedonian man who calls them over to that region in the top left corner of Macedonia. And right under the last A in Macedonia is Philippi. Key city, not the capital, Thessalonica is the capital of the region of Macedonia, but it's on a trade route, it's an important place. Paul and Silas go there, they preach there, you probably remember the story, they are beaten, they are thrown into prison And in the middle of the night, they are in the prison in Philippi and they are singing praises to God and they are rejoicing at God's provision. And then there is an earthquake and the jail now is opened up. And they remain and they talk to the jailer who is afraid that he's going to lose all of his prisoners. And they they speak to him and, and they lead him to Christ. By God's grace, that man comes to faith in Christ, he and his family. And the next day they are set free, Paul and Silas, and they carry on their travels. We know that he came back to Philippi at least once, if not twice. By the time he writes Philippians, Paul is in jail. He is in prison, probably in Rome at this point. It is a warm letter. It reflects what was clearly a a warm relationship between Paul and the Philippian believers, one of love for one another and care for one another, and the evidence of their care for him is alluded to in this passage. Here's what starts this whole discussion of contentment. Chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. some gift to Paul while he was in prison. That seems to be the the gist of this. We see it a little bit later down in verse 18, that it was Epaphroditus who was uh, sort of the messenger who brought their gift to him. We know from chapter 2 that Epaphroditus risked his life to do so. And so Some kind of financial provision, something to help Paul to sustain him while he is under guard, while he is in prison. And so this gift is brought. Paul writes a letter, sends Epaphroditus back with it to give them an update and to give them his gratitude. Paul is clearly encouraged by their generosity, and he wants to quickly send the messenger back. to to let them know how thankful he is, but also to use this to teach them. And it becomes that gift that they give becomes the prompting for this section. Because he says again in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul's language in verse 10 is, is sometimes misconstrued as sort of a reproach or a reprimand, as if he's saying, Thank you, but it sure took a long time, you know, for you to send something. And that's, that, that's not what he's saying. This is not a backhanded compliment. Um, as the last part of the verse makes clear, some, some circumstance came up that their concern was there, but the opportunity wasn't there. So perhaps their own poverty, perhaps it's Paul's being transported or the prison situation he's in, whatever it is, they were not able to express that concern. They had the desire, but not the opportunity. So that's the part now that that sort of sets Paul on this crucial teaching. To use the words of one commentator, although Paul appreciated the Philippians' generosity, he wants to make it clear that he did not feel neglected. And so verse 11, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The first word there, as we've got it in our English, is the same in the Greek. It's not. That is the emphasis. That's the underline. He's saying to them, listen, I know that you wanted to send something sooner, that you were concerned about me, and it wasn't until you finally had the opportunity to do so that you did, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, but know that I was not in need. I was not pining away, waiting each day, and wondering if today the messenger would come, if today the delivery would come from Philippi. I wasn't waiting anxiously, thinking, I need this, they better send it. We can, we can sit nowadays, and you, know, you order your package from Amazon, and now it's at the point where you could actually watch on a map as the delivery guy is eight stops away. Wow two stops away. I can go outside and watch. He's coming, you know. The the Amazon guy is coming with my package. It's that close. Paul was not of that, that mindset. He's saying... What I rejoiced over was our fellowship that that was expressed in your concern for me. That's what I was grateful for. It wasn't the gift that was the issue. I I was grateful for the giver. That's what I'm I'm rejoicing about. The gift itself had no no particular bearing on my emotional well-being because, he says, I learned to be content. I wasn't wrestling with need at that point. And herein lies our main point that we're going to look at this morning. Contentment is a learned heart attitude of sufficiency in Christ that can endure through every circumstance. Contentment is a learned heart attitude of sufficiency in Christ that can endure through every circumstance. So let's take this apart. Point one would be contentment is learned. This is good news, isn't it? If you are struggling to battle discontentment, then the fact that the Apostle Paul says, I have learned to be content ought to encourage you. Because it says to you and I, there is hope that we can learn contentment. That it won't come just magically, but that we can actually learn this. He writes this word that speaks of learning by instruction and experience. And he writes it with a verb tense to make it clear that this was not just one day I read a book or I heard a sermon, and I got it, and now I'm content. I learned at this one magical moment in time. The idea of what he's saying here is over the course of time, over the course of being a believer in Jesus Christ, God has been at work in me and has been bringing me to this place of learning contentment. God has used all of these experiences now to teach me contentment. So the hope there is God's word is telling you and I through Paul's experience that contentment probably won't just show up as a gift. You won't suddenly get it. It is rather something that God is teaching you and I over time through experiences, through both riches and poverty, through hunger and fullness, through good and through bad. In all of this, we are learning to depend on him and trust in him. It is through these things that we can and should learn contentment. After all, Paul wrote this from prison. It was not a good place. There's various discussion about what imprisonment looked like. We know that in some cases Paul was in chains, that it was hardship and suffering. Some could have been perhaps a house arrest kind of situation. He is clear here in Philippians that there is an expectation that this may not end well. And so he speaks back in chapter 1 of his hope to honor Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. In 2.17, he indicates that his life could be on the verge of being poured out, sacrificed for Christ. So there is a, a sincere awareness on Paul's part, not trying to make it more exciting than it is or more dangerous than it is, but there is a reality on his part that imprisonment, underneath the Roman government could easily end in the Caesar or somebody saying enough with him and putting him to death. This was not easy. This was not comfortable. And yet Paul says, I learned contentment. God God had been training me for this. I would suggest to you the implication for you and I is the call to be teachable about contentment, to seek to learn contentment, to pray, to ask God to help us to learn contentment. You will not wake up tomorrow morning and say, got it. But you should wake up and say, Lord, help me today to be content. Teach me what it is to find sufficiency in you in whatever circumstances I am in. Help me to learn this. I will just recommend two books for those of you that want to read more on the topic. Um, Eric Raymond's done a great book called Chasing Contentment. These are on the bottom of your sermon notes, so you have them there as well. And then a wonderful 31-day devotional by Megan Hill called Contentment, Seeing God's Goodness. It's just a page or two a day, Um, just some great biblical thoughts on contentment and then some good self-awareness kind of questions and application questions. So I would encourage you toward that in, in your quest to learn contentment. Contentment is learned. Secondly, it's a heart attitude. Verse 11, when he says again, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The Greek word for content uh, in, in, in verse 11, is an interesting word when you, you sort of translate it literally out of the Greek. It's made up of two parts, tarkus. And it's the idea of self, autos, and archeo, which is to suffice. So literally, it's self-sufficiency. So we look at that and go, that seems a little odd because he's clearly not talking about I've learned to be self-sufficient, even though that's what the word means. It really had the meaning of, and what he's seeking to convey here is, I have learned to be satisfied with my lot in life, that where I am Where God has put me at this point, I have learned to be satisfied there. It's good where I am right now. That's really what the idea of this word for content is in verse 11. One of the reasons I think he uses this word is it was very familiar in language to people like the Philippians in that day because they were very familiar with the, the school of philosophy known as Stoicism. We've heard of Stoics, right? Tough Stoics who put on the, the, the stern face, no matter what the situation, they just sort of muscle right through it. That's kind of our understanding of it. Stoicism was really the idea of regardless of what happens, I will stand firm, I will not be shaken, I will bite my lip, and I will press on. There's a whole American form of this. You know, we talk about self-reliance or rugged individualism. Herbert Hoover, when he was running in 1928, spoke of the American system of rugged individualism and, and, and declared that as being our, one of our governing goals. Whether or not that's a, a governing goal that, that you find favorable or not, the word autarkus essentially says to the Philippians, oh, yeah, this is this, this whole idea of sufficiency. This is that, that resting in, in oneself in that moment. It spoke to them of that stoic lifestyle that was essentially celebrating, I can do this. I am independent. I can make it without help. Paul is going to take that term and repurpose it completely in just a moment, but it helps them to understand the attitude that he's talking about, that this is something that comes out of the heart, This is in terms of a a belief and an understanding that's in the heart, just like discontentment is an attitude of the heart. Discontentment is our natural bent. We have a natural, gravity will just take us toward feeling lack of sufficiency, toward wanting more stuff, toward discontentment. Contentment, though, is an attitude that we have to learn, that, that has to be something that we are... As a discipline, as we would read the Word and as we would pray, that we take as a discipline the learning of making this an attitude that now begins to affect our thinking, so that in circumstances we are responding the way that that Scripture defines for us here. Paul said contentment was with him in whatever situation he was in, he says there at the end of verse 11. Even in prison, when he is stripped down to nothing... Even at times, as as he writes in the, the pastoral letters, everybody's left. There's nobody there to defend him. Even at those moments, when there is nothing, Paul says, I can still possess this attitude. I can still possess what God has taught me and what he has placed in my heart, and that is this sense of this place, this lot in life is okay. I am sufficient here, I have enough. Obviously, he's going to describe how that is here in just a moment, but it is an attitude. We could say that contentment is durable. This is the third point. Durable in the sense that it carries through all kinds of circumstances. He says again, verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. True b- biblical contentment is durable. Paul covers the gamut here. Happy, sad. Sad. High, low, good, bad, poor, rich, hungry, full. He says, whatever the circumstance, whatever was happening externally, ultimately, I was still able to experience this sense of contentment. I know what it is to be humbled and to be broken down. Read Paul's litany in 2 Corinthians, and we see a man who is mocked, who is beaten, who is... Uh, Stoned to the point that he is left for dead and left outside of town to die. He says, I know what it's like to be brought low. I know what it's like to be abounding, to be lifted up, if you will. I, I know what it's like to stand and, and, and preach in Athens and, and see God do wondrous things and heal sick people. I've, I, I've seen God do those things. So I know what it is to be brought down. I know what it is to excel. I know what it is to have nothing. I know what it is to have riches. I've been hungry, and I've left the table full. But the consistent thread through all of those things, he says, is this inner heart attitude, this learned heart attitude of sufficiency, of contentment. It's just as real in the really good as it is in the bad. The, the easy, it, it's easy sometimes when we talk about these things to think, oh, this really matters here in the hungry, poor, difficult painful times, it matters just as much up here in those moments when we are tempted to forget who is the provider of all of those good things, that consistent steadfastness that says, where does my sufficiency come from at this point? But sufficiency is durable. Just a a, a note about the the phrase in verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have learned the secret always seems like such an interesting term, it's like we pause at that and go, here it is. This is, this is something. But just because of the way he words it. Only time this appears in the New Testament, in the Greek language. It's, it's a one-word statement that gets translated at this phrase, and it has the idea of initiated into some kind of mystery. Paul, again, using the language of the day, would have been familiar to his Philippian readers, is, is really illustrating what he's just said in verse 11 which was, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, and then he starts explaining, brought low, abounding, in any and every circumstance, I've been initiated into this secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, need, no matter what it is, no matter what I face, God has graciously allowed for this consistent sense of sufficiency as I've, I've been into every other, every kind of circumstance you can think of. His, his point is, is this. Circumstances will change. Contentment doesn't have to. Our, our external circumstances will change, but contentment is a heart attitude that God designed and is teaching us to experience at all times through whatever comes at us. So it is at this point, getting through verse 12, that we are desperate for verse 13. Because at this point, we've seen Paul talk about some, some kind of consistent sufficiency, some kind of heart attitude that is learned that sort of keeps me content through any and every circumstance. And so now I want to know, what is this? And and, and God's word, after describing this learned attitude, now says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Biblical contentment is Learned. It is a hard attitude. It's durable. And finally, here's where he describes what it is. Contentment is sufficiency in Christ. It is sufficiency in Christ. This is what all of this has been getting at. Jesus Christ must be your sufficiency. He must be enough for you. He must be your joy and your peace and your contentment. We we are so drawn to putting that load on people and on circumstances, on the people around us. They've, they've got to bring us joy. And not only do they have to bring us joy, if they don't, they can ruin our day because they they didn't do what we wanted them to do. And when we put our hope for joy and peace and contentment in people and circumstances, we are just going to ride the roller coaster of up and downs, because those circumstances will change. What we're seeing here is the ability to, in, in the midst of either having a lot or having nothing, being able to say, but I have Christ, I have Christ. And so even when the circumstances are not inducing joy and the people around me are acting in such a way that it is just going after my peace, those are the moments when we are called back to this to say, I have Christ, so what more do I really need at this moment? Sure, there may be things that I would want, And some things I'd like to change. But what do I really need? I have Christ. I have hope. Most of us have either quoted Philippians 4.13 or heard it, quoted At some point, apart from its context, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a, a verse that many of us have memorized at one point or another. What's valuable, though, is to keep it in its context here. Because often the question that goes with that is, what is the all? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It, it builds right out of what he just got done saying in verse 12 when he says, I know how to abound in any and every, all. It's the same word in the Greek. In all circumstances, hunger, plenty, need, lack, whatever it might be. And So when he comes to this in verse 13, What essentially he's saying is that the the all is all that he's just described, whether the highs or the lows of life, whatever it is, I am being enabled by God, enabled by Christ to persevere through these things. I have been given a a competency, if you will, from him. In fact, and and when he says that I, I can do ESV says, I can, and we're, we've typically memorized this as I can. It's a present tense. I do. I am doing. This is this is an ongoing state of his being at this point. Paul is saying that I am being enabled through the one who strengthens me so that it doesn't matter which of those things that we've just talked about. In all of that, it's, this, this isn't just a potential. This isn't just I. I, I can, perhaps, maybe, feel content in this. This is this is scripture saying in all sorts of circumstances, God is enabling me to find sufficiency in Christ. He is strengthening me through who he is and what he's done. As a result of him empowering me, I am being constantly enabled for any and all circumstances. So even when I am provoked, even when when your words are unkind and and I am so tempted to be discontent by that, Christ says, I'm I'm still still with you. I'm still joined to you. I'm still enabling you and strengthening you at this point to rest in what you have in me, in Christ, being strengthened by Jesus. O'Brien writes it this way. Paul makes it perfectly clear that this contentment did not arise from his own inherent or innate resources quite the reverse his self-sufficiency was entirely due to the sufficiency of another there's now paul is, is repurposing what he said earlier about that word content he says you've been taught by the philosophers that this is about self-sufficiency and saying, I can do it. He says, I'm telling you, this is about Christ's sufficiency. This is about resting your life in Christ and believing that with him, he will provide for you. He will be your sufficient source of contentment in any and every circumstance. Think about it this way. This is really what Paul wrote in Philippians, and this is the the one downside of taking a passage of a book where we're jumping in at the end of the book and haven't spent our time sort of working our way through the whole book. We need to remind ourselves of what Philippians is saying prior to this and how this all fits into context. And really, as you think about Philippians, what we're presented with is the king over creation, Existing as God in heaven, enjoying the praise and the worship of the angels, gave up his place in heaven to become a servant in order to die for sinners, who gave up that in order to suffer for us. You and I deserve nothing but God's justice and wrath, but instead we have been delivered from that forever into the kingdom of light to be held by a Savior who will never let us go and who holds us on into his eternal presence. That's really what Paul's been celebrating throughout this book of Philippians that speaks so much of joy because contentment ultimately rests on who Jesus is and what he's done. The Son of God demonstrated the exact opposite of circumstance-based contentment, which is so often what we struggle with. My contentment all rests in what's happening at the moment and what you're saying to me and how you're listening to me and all those sorts of things. And Christ shows us the opposite. He empties himself. He took the form of a servant to be born in the likeness of men and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1. That's the message. That's why in chapter 1, Paul is able to write, for to me, to live is what? Speak to me. It's Christ, right? And to die is gain. T- to die is gain? Gain. And there's Paul saying, it's because it's it's ultimately resting in Christ, my union with him. It's not not dependent on my job, or my spouse, or my paycheck, or, or how much you regard me, or any of those circumstances. If those things are determining my contentment, I will never be content. I will always be like Adam and Eve, standing in the middle of glorious perfection going, but we're missing something. Just need this. And we look at that and we go, oh, how foolish, how foolish in our hearts that we are striving with discontentment. If my heart comes to grips with the fact that I have nothing of any eternal value apart from Christ and that I have everything that I need for this life and the life to come in Christ then by his grace, he is teaching me to be content, to find my sufficiency in Christ. Think about Paul as he writes this letter in prison. He had preached to so many cities at this point. I mean, we have to get the record of Acts. We've got to assume there's probably stuff that's not all detailed for us. So he had preached to so many cities, had by God's grace planted so many churches, and now he is sitting in prison and his audience is a guard. I've got to believe that there were moments. When there was a temptation to go, oh my God, it was, I, you know, we were going to Rome in order to plant a church there and preach the gospel, and then on to Spain, and, and, and I had this all laid out, and now here. Truth is, though, Paul says, I've learned that same thing that God's Spirit is seeking to teach you and I. You and I don't deserve any more and what God has already given us and what Christ has done on the cross. We don't deserve that. The fact is he's given us that by grace. Paul was still being strengthened even in that prison from his union with Christ. The irony of it is as he's sitting in that prison with his audience of one, God is dictating through Paul letters that are going to churches to encourage them that 2,000 years later, God's word now is speaking his truth to us and teaching us to be content, to learn contentment. I I can't imagine at all that Paul had any idea whatsoever that the things that he was dictating or writing in that moment 2,000 years later, he would have brothers and sisters, descendants in Christ who would be going, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. Thank you for reminding me that you are sufficient. Thank you for using the writings of this guy in prison to help me to see this. We need to see our circumstances as ordained by a loving and gracious God, resting in his goodness, giving thanks for what he is doing in our lives. We don't deserve abundance and full bellies. We don't have a right to comfortable living. And the lesson of Philippians is hold what you have loosely and know that if and when God takes it all away, you will still have Christ that's ultimately all that matters. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from love of money, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There it is again. Don't get dragged into this discontentment that's based on your paycheck or your circumstances or whatever it is that you're allowing to measure that. Whatever you have is a gift from the kindness of God, so thank him and praise him for it, and whatever you don't have, is a reminder that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever you don't have is a call to come back to this truth to say, he is enough. Believe that. Learn that. Live in that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that speaks to us of the sufficiency of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive me, Join with brothers and sisters here in and praying and, and acknowledging how how often my heart is drawn aside by discontentment. How often my heart falls to the, the lie that there is something better. Father, forgive me. Help us as people who follow after you to, to believe that whatever the lot in life is. You have ordained these circumstances. You are at work in us for good for those that love you, and are called by you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening to this that has never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, who's not believed that He is the one who gave up the glories of heaven in order to become a servant and gave his life on the cross to pay the price for sinners, and then rose again from the dead. I pray that today you would open their eyes to see Jesus, to believe in him, and to trust in him. Father, for we who are trusting in you, help us this week to be students of contentment. Help us in circumstances that, that seem so difficult at the time to remind ourselves that Christ is enough to ask for your help and your strength as we work through those circumstances, but to not lose that heart attitude, to not fall into a grumbling, a a desire-driven sort of discontentment. Help us to believe that Jesus Christ really is enough for this life and the one to come. It's in his name we pray. Amen.